Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Well, it's March already, and I'm Susie Wilde, kicking off with Talking Books, where I spin through the Rolodex of memory and snap from the spindle the details of a book I either once loved or was one that got away. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, your guide to the future. This month, I'm talking to Tim Bouquet about his new book uh, on Philip Jackson and other things as well. So look forward to that. And we'll hear what on earth all that has to do with Cannonball Corner. But let's start with what we've been reading this month. Tim? Well, I've been reading, uh, well, mainly Tim's books, Tim Bouquet's books, actually, (laughs) but a few others as well. I've been reading Little Scratch by Rebecca Watson. Now, some of you will know her because she uh, went to school in Petersfield. She is a very young and very brilliant writer. She's the assistant art editor on the Financial Times, um, she's she only graduated from university in, in 2016, wow. um, but already being hailed as one of the, the bright new voices of a new generation. It's a it's a quite a tough read, I'd have to say. It's, a, it's sort of about uh, her humdrum. It's a day in her life, or not in this fictional character's life. Um, and what she does is she she melds what's happening to her in the real world with her thought processes in what uh, she describes as a kind of helix that whirls around and on the page. Um, there are sometimes two or three columns on the page of what's going on in a at, at the t- same time. Good. So good. it sounds a bit like Ulysses meets Virginia Woolf. I don't know. Meets yes. The list. Right. <laughs> well, it is quite experimental, I'd say. Um, but I think she pulled it off. It is. It's pretty pretty extraordinary read. So well, that's good on that's her anyway. First. Yeah, good for her. Another book. Um, that I've been reading is a book called Last One at the Party by Bethany Clift. Um, this is another quite dark book, um, but with humour. It's got plenty of that. It's about a young woman who spent her life compromising who she is and trying to fit in. Suddenly, she is the last person left in the country. Ooh. Everyone else having been wiped out by a virus. It, I did tell it you it was this dark. Country, or... <laughs> this, this country, yes. Yeah. Um, and so what does she do next? And um, well, what would you do? I don't know. Um, anyway, it's been described a bit as, as um, Fleabag meets I Am Legend. And it is, um, it's essay entertaining and dark in equal measure. Um, and just for a bit of light reading, the, other, the, the last one I was going to mention was a book called To Calais in Ordinary Time by James Meek. Now, I'm afraid this is another plague book. So this one is set in 1348 rather than in the future. I'm seeing a theme here, Tim. <laughs> it's also it's also quite experimental, like um, like uh, the the uh, little scratch. But it's um, it's got three narrators. One follows a kind of bureaucratic cleric. One is a is a a sort of noblewoman, and the third one is a is a farm labourer. And each one uses a different different style of language. The labourer uses a kind of part invented early English. Anyway, they're all heading off to Calais together, but for different reasons, in the company of a, of a group of archers who are going to fight in, in France. Uh, in the other direction is coming the plague, uh, the Black Death. It's a, it's a strange book. Um, it's quite dry in parts, it takes a bit of time to get going, and it's very bawdy in other parts, um, with bits of sudden violence. So it's not a, not a straightforward read, I would say, but it's well worth the effort. 
Over to you, Susie. Over, over to me. Unlike you, <laughs> with your sort of apocalyptic meltdown and lockdown fodder, I go in this pandemic time for humour and lightness and joy. Um, so in case you're like that, listeners, too, um, here's mine. So the first one, now, last time, if you were listening, I recommended um, David Nobbs because I had begun with going gently because I was, you know, starting back in my knobs mania as it were and um, gently, exactly <laughs> but this time i've gone for the famous fall and rise of reginald perrin which i'm really happy to say is as funny as i remembered it is when people say i laughed out loud you know it's I actually did. I, to the annoyance of Richard, who probably wanted to kill me, I would just bark with laughter in places and have to read it out to him because it's just... And it works. I mean, it's just so funny. Even just a little parcel. You haven't got to do that boring, oh, well, the situation is this in order to find it funny. It just is, particularly of people of our demographic. Um, so I really, really commend that to you. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I remember it when it was on on, on telly, uh, perhaps even the first time around, but certainly the second time around. Um, and I always thought it, it was one, always one of the highlights I remember of, of um, very funny. It was. Leonard Rossiter is, of course, a prince um, of comedy. And I was quite surprised um, to see how different the Reginald Perrin is in the book, in the pages of the book, to the point that I even physically stopped thinking about Leonard Rossiter. It's in many places darker, but still very much humorously darker. And mm. the second book I have is You, Me and the Sea by Elizabeth Haynes. Now, Elizabeth, I got to know when I was um, doing the MA in creative writing and she came because she had just got a publishing deal. So she was telling us about her excitement and she was very much at the forefront of psychological thrillers, woman at home threatened by stalker or whatever all all that kind of stuff unreliable narration it was wonderful but this book you me in the sea has gone in a completely other direction um where it i would say it's a romance it's set on a very remote scottish island um which i love and i'm also researching for my book three so i thought that you know this is a no-brainer it's my friend i want to read it anyway but i've never read romance it's just not a genre i have ever done and I do urge everybody to dip into genre fiction of one that they're not really used to because the the quality the literary quality of it is much better than anyone thinks and this absolutely I think will enchant you it's just there's nothing to dislike about it it literally is a page turner I just think oh I'll just read 10 minutes before so and so and I look up it's an hour later and I'm halfway through the book it's honestly it's so good and I cared about the characters so much that I actually wrote to her say oh remember me she said oh it's brilliant to hear from you and she told me how she pictured the story continuing a little bit it isn't enough for a book to and I'm absolutely not going to spoil anything by saying it but I honestly commend it to anybody out there probably more women than men but there are more women readers than men but I do think chaps would also enjoy it I, I do I enjoy a bit of, of romance uh, a romantic fiction certainly so um so yeah do you? There's a, a soft yeah. side to Mr. Kelly that I didn't suspect. 
<laughs> Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. So we're joined today by Tim Bouquet, who's a journalist, author, creative writing teacher, and probably many other things as well. Um, his works appeared in Observer magazine, Telegraph, The Times, loads of magazines, Vanity Fair. Uh, he's the author of four books of nonfiction and, and a novel as well. So uh, plenty, <laughs> plenty going on there. So welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Um, so the, the most recent uh, of your books is one I wanted to start talking about first, probably, which is Philip Jackson, A Life in Sculpture. What, what, what drew you to write about Philip Jackson? Um, in a nutshell, I was asked to do it. I'd met Philip uh, a couple of times because uh, I'd written a book about 617 Squadron, The Dam Busters. And I'd gone to look at his sculpture in Green Park. And I met him a couple of times and said how much I liked that sculpture. That was the end of that. And then his wife, Jean, decided that it would be a good idea to do a book. And would I do it? At that point, I knew nothing about sculpture at all, apart from looking at it. But I kind of like going into worlds where I think this could be interesting and actually finding out how something like a piece of sculpture starts life, how long it takes, how it's manufactured. And that's what I set out to uh, try and describe, to, I suppose, to a general reader, rather than writing a sort of academic work on a British sculptor. Which right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I'd assumed that you were you were an expert in sculpture because having having looked, you know, having the book was is well certainly gives that impression anyway. It is the most beautiful book, I'd have to say. It's not just not just your words, but the the wonderful pictures as well. One of the things that that I took home for the book was this at the beginning of the, his, the way he he starts off in sculpture. This big divide between figurative sculpture and abstract sculpture. He talks about the long. You talk about the long shadow of Henry Moore. That that means that that meant that um, it was very difficult for, for figurative sculptors to get a look in. Yes, it was. There used to be competitions for sculptors to do public work, but Henry Moore was often on the judging panel, so if you're a figurative sculptor, the chances of you winning it were zero. Right. And I think with his passing, the pendulum shifted back towards um, figurative sculpture. I mean, you talk about the the, 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 the the memorial to Bomber Command in, in Green Park, which is an astonishing piece. Uh, it really does blow you away, doesn't it? It does. And I wanted to know how it was made. And so I spent a day at the uh, sculpture foundry where it was made. And I started off with Philip in his studio and the initial sketches, uh, the whole process. But going to... Um, a sculpture foundry it was just well, it was interesting, illuminating, uh, full of atmosphere, hot metal, lots of steam, heat, and the intricacies of making something that weighs seven tons, where every buckle and button has to be accurate. Because if it isn't, someone's going to come along and say, "Oh, they never wore buckles like that." Um, I found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it, it's an extraordinary achievement. And um, I mean, the other, the other, we've got lots of his work locally, of course, because um, 
his studio being in Midhurst means that um, that a lot of people will be will be aware of of the the angel in Harting Church, which is which is my local uh, in my in my village, um, which is an extraordinary the angel Gabriel. Um, it's the the church being the um, Saint Mary and, and Saint Gabriel. The bust of Saint Richard outside Chichester Cathedral as well. So there's quite a lot of of his work around. Minerva outside the Minerva Theatre. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's quite a figure. I also I was I was interested to note that that uh, there's a Peacefield connection as well. His his first gallery was in in Peacefield, wasn't it? Well, there was a gallery just outside Peacefield in um, Strood, which was uh, owned by a German who claimed he was a former SS paratrooper. Whether he was or not, I don't know. But he was the first person to display Philip's work. I would have to say this is the most beautiful book, and if you get a chance to to get see a copy, it is really really worth worthwhile. Um, but I wanted to move on to some of your other books as well, because um, uh, the one I particularly enjoyed reading was was Cold Steel um, about the uh, Lakshmi Mittal and the the, the multi billion um, dollar battle to to in the steel industry. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that book? Well, that started because. I was commissioned by the Telegraph magazine to write a profile of him. And this was towards the end of this takeover battle when it was largely done and dusted. And he was talking about it. And I thought, this sounds like a John le Carre novel. You know, all, yeah. all these, these movers and shakers meeting at private airports in the middle of the night and checking into hotels under assumed names and millions and millions of dollars shifting this way and that way. Of course, after it was all finished, initially he wasn't very interested in a book. Oh, I'm too busy. I've got, I've got two companies to merge. But eventually we, we got there. It was a fascinating journey talking to all these people in various countries. I suppose I interviewed him five or six times and sort of the more he talked, the more he gave, which I'll often find is, is true. I'd always been inspired by books like Barbarians at the Gate, where, you know, the outsider comes in and rocks the boat. And this was a similar case because uh, Mittal arrived seemingly from nowhere to be the biggest maker of steel in the world by hoovering up old assets in Eastern Europe. And then he went for Arcelor, which was the second biggest company and was, I suppose, making superior products. And he was met with a lot of racism, particularly from the French. It, it then went international. The Indian government got very cross. So it basically had a huge number of these elements to it. It, it, it was like a thriller. Yeah, I have to say it does. It does read like a thriller. It, it's a, whether that's a conscious decision on, on on your behalf, but it it's very exciting. It's a very exciting read. Um, I, I think I just wrote it as it happened. Yeah, yeah. It, it struck me from when I first interviewed him. My God, this is you. You can picture this. You can, you know, when when he tells me that he's 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 in his helicopter flying over Paris and the Air Force comes out and orders him to land because he's strayed into the wrong airspace. You think that you couldn't make this stuff up. Absolutely. And also he, he does sound like a, 
I mean, having having all this coverage at the moment about the uh, the fall, the the book on Robert Maxwell by by John Preston, um, where he obviously was a complete monster. Uh, um, Mittal come, doesn't come across like that at all in your in your book. No, he's not. But I think Maxwell Maxwell wanted to be a great newspaper man and knew damn all about newspapers. That was his problem. Uh, Mittal is a steelmaker. Um, he's not a man. Yeah, he wears a suit. But he knows how to run a steel plant. It's in his sort of DNA. He's not. He's not an accountant. Uh, he's not a, a sort of entrepreneur in, in that sense. I mean, he's a risk taker, and he's a watchful character. But I don't think he has that sort of bombastic side that Maxwell certainly had. No, which leads me into. Uh, are you obviously very interested in in these? These um, titans of industry. The, the the article you wrote on on Carlos Ghosn in the in the I think it was in the, in the Sunday Times. I think it was. It was a, another extra, extraordinary character. One thing leads to another. With that, I thought, well, here's a man who uh, is running a major car company, uh, falls out, sent to jail, comes out and escapes in a music box, and pops up in Beirut, and I discovered that the person he had hired to do his PR, who's based in Paris, was the same woman that Lakshmi Mittal had used to try and persuade the French government to play ball. So I got onto her and she said, yeah, why not? So I flew out with a photographer to Beirut just before lockdown uh, to meet Mr. Ghosn. And it, uh, I think it's that whole world is is extraordinary. And just go just to just to go and move on to another book, um, which is a, a, another world entirely. Having done gone from sculpture, going back to to um, the steel industry, now into into the Dam Busters, the Six One Seven Squadron. Um, so how how come you came to write that again? We I suppose you were asked to do it. I suppose we're again. Um, Ryan were very keen to do a book about Six One Seven Squadron, and called my agent saying, do you know any, have you any writers who could take this on? And he phoned me up and he said, you know I, how much I'd like you to have a nice warm spring break? I said, yes, where might that be? He said, how about Kandahar? <laughs> so we talked some more. We then went to the MOD because you have to go through the MOD process. So um, I then spent a lot of time going up to RAF Lossermouth where they were training because I really wanted to get to know as many of them as possible. And I think we normally think of squadrons as just pilots and navigators, but the, all these other people, the, you know, the engineers, the armourers, the, the, the strategic people, the intelligence people. So actually a squadron is about, you know, Seven, seven or eight pilots and a hundred other people. And I really wanted to sort of get their stories into this. The first thing they did, they put me up in an aircraft, which was great, we up in a tornado. We took off from a base in Norfolk and we flew to Wales, which took eight minutes. And we came to 20,000 feet down to 200, flying over people's conservatories and... Um, Wow. Was, yeah, I mean, in the book, you talk about these special trousers, G trousers you have to wear. 
Wait, do you wear? Do you have a pair of G trousers on? Yes, because if not, when 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 um, the G force is uh, at its height, what you, your blood wants to do is leave your body by the closest orifice. So as 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 the pressure builds, these trousers, which are connected to the plane, start to squeeze you, squeeze your legs, so you don't black out, and your okay. blood stays in your body. It's very surreal when after that um, trip, which is about two hours, um, I then had to drive home, and about a mile down the road, I had to stop, sit in a lay-by for half an hour because it was just so surreal that I've been up there, and now I'm here trying to drive a car. But I wanted, I wanted to be able to know what it feels like to be inside a plane. Like well, it, it it certainly comes across in the book. I mean, you 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 really bring to life the the thrill of of flying a fast jet. What it what it must what it actually feels like to to have that amount of uh, of power and uh, energy pushing you and pulling you and um, and also that there's this extraordinary high tech nature of, of 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 being a pilot or a navigator these days. The thing that struck me about being in a plane was from the outside, they are incredibly noisy when you're on the airfield and they're take, taking off. But inside, they're remarkably quiet. And yet the noise they make is phenomenal. I was going to say, what, what, what's, what's next then? If you cover, you, where, which direction are you, going to, are you going to shoot off in for the next book? I never, I never know. I've just finished a novel, which is with my agent. I went to... Um, Berlin a few years ago to do a story about AIDS in Eastern Europe, particularly Russia, um, where HIV and AIDS are off the scale there. And an awful lot of them are, are coming into uh, East, into Berlin to be treated and have their lives saved. And I met a couple of people whose lives had been saved, one from Russia, one from Ukraine. And I suddenly thought, what if someone highly unscrupulous was to flood the Eastern European market with fake antiretrovirals. So that's basically what the book is about. Are we going to get that on our, on our bookshelf soon? And what's the sort of timescale are we looking at? I think next year earliest. I don't know, publishing is so, well, you know better than I do. Titles being put back and yeah. uh, I don't, I mean, publishing like everything else, it seems to be in complete flux. Yes, it is. And, uh, Books that poor people who've had their books published in the last, I don't know, almost the last year really, have had a really tough, tough ride because uh, because it's been very hard to market them at all. Um, but you know, things are things are looking up. I think the um, I think the, the 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 schedules for the next from about April onwards are starting to look very busy, and and I think that that authors hopefully will be quite soon back out and and pushing their be able to push their books properly um, and tell people about them. I'm also working on a biography of an Indian industrialist. Um, and I should have been in India by now doing interviews, but that obviously hasn't happened. So I'm doing a lot of that on the dreaded Zoom, which is okay for fact, but no good for atmosphere, character. So no. I hope I'm going to get out to India in May. Because there's another book actually I didn't actually mention, which is The Man Behind the Wheel. That's um, another book about it. Tell, tell, tell us about that one. Um, yeah, that's a man who, he makes tyres. He's a Sikh, and when he was six years old, he came down 
from uh, Lahore in the cattle truck with his family when people were being slaughtered heavily on both sides uh, after partition. His family started off in one room in Delhi. His father became self-made, became a close confidant of Mrs. Gandhi. Um, he did what a lot of Indians did in those days. They set up sort of scattergun industries. They'd be doing steel one moment and brewing the next and with no rhyme or reason. <clears throat> and he bought, he bought a little tire company in Kerala. He told his son to go and sell it, which his son refused to do. And the little tire company got more and more uh, successful. Dad's companies all went down the tube. Dad then tried to sue his son, uh, had him arrested. So there's this sort of huge personal battle going on, which, and it was also the story of independent India through one person's eyes. So I had all these strands. So in a sense, the tires were kind of irrelevant. Because it's, it's sort of, in some, some ways, quite similar to the, to the uh, Lakshmi Mittal story in that he, he, he grew up in, when he was born into, 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 into very uh, um, basic life initially, uh, and then his he took over. He was sent. I think you say he's sent to to sort out one of his father's um, plants somewhere, and discovered that actually he'd rather like to um, make it even better than it was rather than sell it. His dad had bought some land to build a plant on, and so he sent Lakshmi there to just go get rid of the land, sell it. And Lakshmi didn't do that. He thought, no, I'll build a plant here, which is what he did. Yeah. Amazing. And because he, he and his father fell out, he's fallen out with his brothers. This sort of big Indian business families have huge histories of falling out. Tim, tell us about your connections with Petersfield. I was brought up just outside Petersfield. My father managed a farm that ran from what is now the industrial estate in Petersfield, either side of the railway, up to the top of Butson Hill, 1,260 acres, mixed farm, which was owned by an aunt and uncle of his, who was sort of Chelsea Bohemians. He was an architect. She uh, had a gallery selling paintings, and they thought after the war, it'd be nice to go and dabble in farming. So it was a farm, it's an old-fashioned mixed farm. No one quite knew how many people were employed. It was either 60 or 70. But it was a fascinating place to grow up. You know, we, the uh, three German cowmen were all uh, ex-prisoners of war. They had a cheese factory, they had a mill, they, they had a bit of everything, really. That's so sad that it isn't still there. Well, you know, every time I see a, a farmer's market, I think, think back, they, they used to do farmer's markets years and years ago. When Petersfield had its huge market <clears throat> square, you know, for all yeah. that. Yeah, the farm basically went all the way up to the top of Butser Hill, over mm. towards Ramsdean on one side, over towards Bereton on the other side. So we had uh, sh sheep and belted galloways up on the top of the hill. We had pigs, we had dairy cattle, arable, a bit of everything. It was, it was a magical place to, as a child to wander around. It must have been. And tell me, what was Cannonball Corner? Cannonball Corner is, you know, where the Queen Elizabeth uh, Information Centre is? Yeah. The other side of the road is like a sort of mini valley field going up to 
some very old yew trees. And during the war, the Royal Artillery used to uh, use it for firing practice, as they did at Kingly Vale too. Obviously something about yew trees, the MOD decided let's <laughs> last some 2,000-year-old trees. When it came to be farmed after the war, every time that was ploughed, they would dig up ordnance, which, of course, as a kid was really exciting because someone would come along and blow it up. And so it just became known as Cannonball Corner. That Honestly, I found that fascinating. So even though I know and obviously I've read the books, I was so interested to hear a bit more about it. And it just occurred to me while you were talking that there's method acting and then there's method writing and you totally immerse yourself in the subject. So that what I've always loved about the books is the fact that you therefore wear the research very lightly. You sort of, as a reader, you live the experience with you. And that's brilliant. So our challenge to all our authors at the end of the interview is what one book would you take to a desert island? There are several mighty tomes that I would either like to read again or even finish. But I decided um, there's a novel by a Sri Lankan writer called uh, Ramesh Gunasekara called Reef, which was his first novel. And it was shortlisted for the Booker in 1994. The main character is called Triton, and he is in London. He's running a restaurant. He stops in at a petrol station to get fuel. He goes up to pay. There's a guy behind the desk who looks very like him, but can't speak any English. He's also from Sri Lanka, but he's a Tamil. Right. And then the book goes back to when Triton was 11 years old, and he works as a kitchen boy for a man called Mr. Salgado, who is desperately trying to save a coral reef. But the reef is really just emblematic of what's happened in Sri Lanka. Uh, he wrote the book against the backdrop of Gulf War, Yugoslavia. So it's about loss, it's about longing. It's very elegantly, beautifully written. It's a small book, but I just love it. I just love it. And let me just quickly read you a sentence. Yeah, he says, uh, I knew I wanted to write a novel that could be slipped into a pocket like the ones I treasured most and with luck grow bigger in the mind. And I think that sort of sums it up, really. Less is more. Yeah, no good. You fooled me with your mighty tomes there. Um, that's wonderful. Sorry, thank you very much, Tim, for coming on today. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's been really, really interesting to hear all about your, your writing and best of luck with you. your next project. And hopefully your bookshop will open again. Very soon. Thanks. Good. Good. Thank you. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Well, it's section four, which is our what's coming up to look out for books and gossip. And Tim, with this lovely warm weather, I've got to say I've been busy in the garden and my favourite gardener and writer is Monty Don. I really loved his book about Nigel because obviously I'm a book per a book person, I'm a book person and a dog person um, and that encompasses both and I really like the way he writes. It's as though he's a chum and he just sort of takes you by the arm and chats about dogs and I just saw the other day in the Times I think it was that The Complete Gardener has been updated and coming out again this month. It's quite topical and organic. Yes, and uh, he actually heads my list of, of uh, books coming out in in March. Fancy um, that. 
fancy that. Um, the paperback of his book, My Garden World, is also due out in March. And it's a it's a kind of personal journey through the natural year, season by season, month by month. Lots of observations and insights. Um, he's a really interesting guy, I think, and he's had his he's had his ups and downs both with his career and his um, and his mental health. So I think it's uh, going to be a really interesting interesting read. That how has he dealt with lockdown? Incidentally, do we know? I don't know actually. Um, it's interesting, but I think I, I think that uh, his his attachment to his his uh, his garden and his and his and his dogs probably helped him a lot. I should think. So that's the first book I was going to talk about. Um, the second one I've, uh, is is um, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh yes. Um, now, of course, he's he's really in the news in the last in the last year or so with his uh, picking up the Nobel Prize, um, and the first uh, writer English writer to do that for some time. This book is which I haven't read yet, and I'm I'm very keen to read it. Is slightly strange and, and futuristic and I won't say too much about the plot because like Never Let Me Go and um, and some of his other books to talk about it does reveal perhaps too much um, it's the sort of novel though like like uh, his book The Buried Giant that you unpick as you go um, I think it's always an unsettling uh, re- a read with 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 him it slowly reveals things as as you go through the book uh, but I think he's a, he's, a, he's a wonderful writer. I still absolutely love Remains of the Day. And I did hear him talking on Radio 4 Today programme this week, M- Monday, I think it was. Um, and he was saying that he actually wanted to write something that had humour in it. Um, and it's fascinating. If anyone hasn't heard it, I think it will be on Pick of the Week um, because he's also talking about how to unpick, talking about unpicking, the Nobel Prize winning author from himself as this sort of jobbing writer who just gets the words down in his office. Yeah, he takes takes an awfully long time to write his books as well. I think he takes sort of five years or so. Um, And his wife uh, is a a fairly brutal editor, I think, and has told him before now to start start again Uh, with 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 very giant. I think in particular, he he. uh, Having finished it, he said, "I think I've, I've, you know, I think this is great." She said, "No, no good. Start again." And he ripped it up and started again. So there you go. <laughs> um, so that's number two. The, the next book I want to talk about is a book called "Saving Missy" uh, by Beth Mori. It's one of those heartwarming debuts, um, which surprisingly got on the bestseller list actually when it was when it came out in hardback last year. Um, I'll tell you a bit about the book. Missy is she's approaching her 80th birthday. And living on her own in a in a big house in London, she's lonely, defensive, and grieving for the family that she's lost touch with. Um, a chance encounter in the park with two very different women opens the door to a different way of living. The question is: Is it too late to start all over again? It's uplifting, joyful. Uh, it's not sentimental. And and a clue, a dog is a key player in this story. Oh, I'll like <laughs> it, won't I? <laughs> you will like it, yeah. Um, uh, something quite different next. Liquid Gold, Bees and the Pursuit of Midlife Honey by Roger Morgan Grenville. This is a non-fiction. It's the story of, of Roger and his friend Duncan and their attempt to become beekeepers. It's very funny uh, and informative about all things bee-related, yeah, we hope that, and that I'm pretty sure we've got Roger coming along 
next month to talk about both this and his new book, uh, Shearwater, about the seabird. So um, I think brilliant. it should be really, it'd be really interesting that, but it's uh, it's a very, he's a very funny writer. So I'm sure it'll, it'll be, it'll be a hit. Lastly, but not, but not least a cookery book. And we don't often have cookery books on here. And I think we should have, we should have more of those. Um, new book by Anna Jones, uh, who was a protege of Jamie Oliver. And um, she's written a book called One Pot Pan Planet. And the idea is she's a, she's a, I suppose describe her as a as a sort of very much a young modern um, vegetarian cook. She did her first book came out about I think about six or seven years ago, a modern way to eat, uh, which was oh, a yeah. was a bit sensation at the time. And um, she's done a couple of books since then. But it's it's sort of quick. This book is is quick, healthy, fresh food uh, in one pot. And the idea also is that is that. Um, she has kind of environmental principles in at the heart of her cooking as well. That's hence the planet bit of the title. Um, but I think that'll be that 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 will go down very well. Yeah, I, there's so many young people who care very much, isn't it? And so that seems to encompass a, a good a good lot there. Well, that's fabulous, Tim. I really look forward to to reading. Well, you know, I haven't actually read any of those. I think I. Yeah, my garden world rings a bell. I might have seen that in hardback, but the others I don't know at all. So that's really good. So now we move on to my backlisted book, which is a bit extraordinary this time. It's Live and Let Die by Ian Fleming. Now, I chose this because I absolutely adore all the James Bond films. And also when I was growing up in Portsmouth, Elm Grove Library had all the brilliant Golands um, Ian Flemings with incredible covers. I might put a photograph of one up on the website for this time, actually, as a, as a change. And I thought because of the films that Live and Let Die would come quite late. But in fact, it's the second one published. And Casino Royale was the first. And this was published in 1954. So it is exactly the same age as me. So um, it wasn't that grandiose. I just happened to have picked this up recently. And I don't think I have actually read this one. I think it's the one that got away. So I was fascinated to read it. Now, if you're of particularly, um, let's say, woke disposition. I don't want to say that and make it sound pejorative. I mean, really, we do have very different sensibilities these days than were current in 1954. And we're all known. I mean, I had my sort of, you know, it's not going to be exactly a feminist tract hat on. But in fact, because it takes place in Harlem at the beginning, Mr. Big is indeed black and huge and a giant, as we would now say. But everybody here is referred to with the non-pejorative N-word. So there's a bit at the start that you just think, I can't believe I am reading this. But actually, the more you read on, the more you realise that it is simply a term that I then remembered my mum considered to be the polite word. In the 60s, she would be, you know, not wanting to say black. She thought that sounded rude. Um, so I think it's very much in that spirit. And Ian Fleming, of course, famously lived in Jamaica for ages and clearly loves it and loves the people, not in a belittling way at all, but in giving them complete respect for, for, for who they are and, and knowing their island intimately. And... When I thought about it, I also realised that in 1954, 
um, was the year rationing ended. Um, it was sweets was the last thing as it happened. And I can't stand sweets. It really made me realise that all the stuff, it's a bit like a grown up Enid Blyton because he talks about the food so much. And I thought this is his gift. This is his gift to smoggy old wartime London that's been starved, has never seen a banana. Um, and I just love it. Plus, it has voodoo. It has Solitaire, who is the most beautiful woman that Bond ever has anything to do with. But what I'm going to read are just a couple of very short extracts for a change um, to just give you a feel of travel, because we're all in lockdown. And I think let's pretend we've also been shut in smoggy old London. I mean, we've certainly been shut. And just I won't say any more, except this is him and Solitaire heading down to Florida, but they're leaving New York. The crack train thundered on through the bright afternoon towards the south. They left Pennsylvania behind and Maryland. There came a long halt at Washington, where Bond heard through his dreams the measured clang of the warning bells on the shunting engines and the soft think-speak of the public address system on the station, then on into Virginia. Here the air was already softer, and the dusk only five hours away from the bright, frosty breath of New York smelt almost of spring. So that's that bit, and they rattle along and have a conversation and so on. It was 11 o'clock at night, and the train was on the long stretch between Columbia and Savannah, Georgia. There were another six hours or so to Jacksonville, another six hours of darkness, during which the big man would almost certainly have instructed his agent to make some move while the whole train was asleep and while a man could use the corridors without interference. The great train snaked on through the dark, pounding out the miles through the empty plains and mingy hamlets of Georgia, the Peach State, the angry moan of its four-toned windhorn soughing over the wide savannah and the long shaft of its single searchlight ripping the black calico of the night. So those are the actual train journey down there. And then in complete contrast, because I don't think we think of Ian Fleming particularly, we'll chat in a minute, but I don't think of him as being such a beautiful writer. I think of him as being this kind of a thriller pace on on um, and of course it isn't so now we are in Jamaica they had got off before nine and it was still cool as they crossed the mountains that run along Jamaica's back like the central ridges of a crocodile's armour the road wound down towards the northern plains through some of the most beautiful scenery in the world the tropical vegetation changing with the altitude the green flanks of the uplands, all feathered with bamboo interspersed with the dark glinting green of breadfruit, and the sudden Bengal fire of flame of the forest, gave way to the lower forests of ebony, mahogany, maho and logwood. And when they reached the plains of Agualta Vale, the green sea of sugarcane and bananas stretched away to where the distant fringe of glittering shrapnel bursts marked the palm groves along the north coast. Quarrel was a good companion on the drive and a wonderful guide. He talked about the trapdoor spiders as they passed through the famous palm gardens of Castleton. He told about a fight he had witnessed between a giant centipede and a scorpion, 
and he explained the difference between the male and female pawpaw. He described the poisons of the forest and the healing properties of tropical herbs, the pressure the palm kernel develops to break open its coconut, the length of a hummingbird's tongue, and how crocodiles carry their young in their mouths, laid lengthways like sardines in a tin. Um, I love that. And he goes, he spoke exactly but without expertise, using Jamaican language in which plants strive or quail, moths are bats, and love is used instead of like. As he talked, he would raise his hand in greeting to the people on the road and they would wave back and shout his name. And it just strikes me, Tim, that's like a love letter. I think that's some good writing there, isn't there? Mm. Um, I, I have never, never read a James Bond novel. So there you go. Oh, my God. <laughs> that really astonishes me. Um, because yeah. I mean, yes, I read him when I was too young to discern much, but I think the beginning of From yeah. Russia with Love um, is the best opening of thing, of certainly of his, which is something like um, the man lying by the pool might have been dead. And that just, you know, short, simple, sets up the whole thing. But I gave the warning at the beginning. I should have also added that although, you know, yes, I've given the warning, I deliberately chose passages where nobody will be offended. So, you know, I hope that's fine. But I would still urge people to read it, um, to to get past the N-word, because, as I say, he isn't meaning it in a horrible way. And it, it is totally evocative of that time as much as the fact he smokes four packets of cigarettes a day we can deplore it whilst recognizing that that's actually what it was like then i just just brings to mind me to mind uh, uh paul mccartney and and wings actually saying live and let die but I, you know that's <laughs> well i'm going to ask and i hope you may have already heard it you'll either hear it before or after i'm going to ask if we can play the track when this goes out on our live stream so you won't hear it if you're listening to this on demand but if you're on the live stream let's hope you do so Fantastic. tim on to our last section so what what do we got to look out for well i think uh, uh well hopefully next next month we're going to have roger coming on on the program talking to about Shearwater and also about the paperback of, of uh, Liquid Gold. Um, so that's something to look forward to. Absolutely. That's brilliant. And I'll choose another forgotten title. Um, it might be one of these. I've been wondering why some books and authors languish after having been top sellers in their time. So I'm thinking about Margaret Kennedy, Pamela Hansford Johnson. Again, all these I just got out of the library without knowing who on earth they were some of whom, of course, were then published by Virago. Um, so did you know, I only found this out the other day, that for Virago, because they had so such little money that they would go to the London Library and borrow books, which is the only place because they're all out of print, and they'd borrow the book and then sort of deconstruct it, photocopy the pages, bind it, and then rebind the original and give it back to the London Library. I'm not sure that 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 would that would pass the the copyright copyright test, but uh, yeah, well, no, interesting London stuff. The library allowed them to, so it must have been there. Must be some sort of must be some some reason. Them. There you yeah. go. But anyway, let's have a think. Let's both of us think if any men are also languishing, having been forgotten. I would maybe say Ian Fleming. I'm just I'm shocked to my boots that you haven't read any. So uh, I honestly I think they're wonderful. 
Well, that's lovely. That's the end of it. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Um, just bringing you different stuff the whole time. And I can't wait to talk to Roger uh, about bees because that's always been an ambition of mine. So that will be wonderful. Great. Thank you very much, Susie. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. We need to have a plan. Stay at home and make it shine. You've got it. Great lockdown listening from Petersfield's Shine Radio. It's about staying as local as we can and helping as many people in the community as we can. Joff <laughs> continues his bromance with John Walker from the Petersfield Post. Yeah. You do look lovely. Very much, John. You're the only person I see every week. Motivation is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Hello, my name is Matthew. I'm from Class 1G at Church's College, and this is a song I spent hours listening to in lockdown. I was walking past College Street and saw the phone box. So I had an idea that I'd start a little bookshop. It's really just come in and help yourself. We've got lovely Lucy with us and Harrison, who's playing with some knobs. The real pleasure is in the bass. Bass Stupendously crunchy. I'm feeling quite patient about the whole thing. Stay at home and make it shine. Slightly intimidated by being told so precisely what to do. Great lockdown listening from Petersfield's Shine Radio. Mm-hmm.